we've been studying God's Word and asking ourselves this same question each week, that if we are the church, you didn't come to church, we gathered as the church, then how do God's people live life? How are we a testimony to the city, to each other, to a watching world, that we are truly followers of Jesus? Last week we began in 1 Timothy chapter 1, looking at verses 1 to, sorry, 1 Timothy 2, verses 1 to 7, that to be the people of God, the very first thing we must be about is prayer. Now, I admitted last week that my personality, my disposition, doesn't find prayer easy. I know it is what I'm supposed to do, but I have to admit that I struggle with it. And if you look at our passage, I'm so thankful, and I have been challenged And to be quite honest, as I stand before you to tell you, in the last month, been really awakened to the realities of the power of prayer, that prayer indeed does change things, not the least of which is it changes you, me. And so last week, I started out by saying this, Christian ministry, spiritual work, is not accomplished by might, ability, or technique, but by prayer. Amen? And as excited as you guys get, just as I got that wonderful display, you all agree that that is true, all right? The other one as well, well, right? Prayer is the most important thing God's people do. Mm Mm-hmm. That's, again, I love that excitement, all right? Now, as well last week, I read this statement. In the beginning, the church was a fellowship of men and women centering on the living Christ. Then the church moved to Greece, where it became a philosophy. Then it moved to Rome, where it became an institution. Then it moved to Europe, where it became a culture. And finally, it moved to America, or North America, where it became a business. And again, last week, many of you agreed with that. Tragically, if you look around us today, we have effectively made Christianity very businesslike. Here's my problem with this statement, is all of us will agree This is more true than not true. But tragically, I believe that most people in the church today, especially in Canada the United States, would only like to see this statement go back one step. Where we would like to see Christianity be a culture again. That's why I think the politics and the protesting and all the things that we see so prevalent today are not really about the gospel, but they're more about we want to take back the glory days, the good old days, when we lived in a good old Judeo-Christian society and everybody said the Lord's Prayer before school started and we had a very moral culture. Well, I would say that that's nice and novel. But Jesus said in Matthew 16, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses soul? And as we walk through this, as you walk through 1 Timothy, you're going to find Paul is not interested in political activism. Paul is not interested in churches that are all about what they stand against. He's not about us taking stands for this and against. He's about, are you for the gospel and for Jesus Christ? And the first way you do that is prayer. So last week we looked at the idea of the priority of prayer. So if you're at 1 Timothy chapter 2, let me read verses 1 to 7. And I want you to think again in terms of a letter. Our Bible has these chapters and verses, and it's great and helpful for us to memorize. But when this was written, there were no chapter breaks, there were no verses. It was a letter written, okay? The introduction is all of chapter 1 
where Paul basically says, Timothy, I'm sending you to the church at Ephesus. They have totally messed it up. They're elitist. They're self-centered. They're about themselves. They're all about their doctrine. They have divided into camps. They're arguing over stuff that's not important. They've got bad leadership. They are messed up. And for the whole beginning of chapter 1, he just lays out the plan. And then he starts in chapter 2, verse 1, where he says, First of all then, of first importance, the very first thing, Timothy, you need to get the church at Ephesus to do, I urge that supplications and prayers and intercessions and thanksgiving be made for all people. Again, if you write in your Bible, highlight, circle, underline, for all people people not for the people we like not for the church not for the people that are in our social demograph not for the people that we think we must pray for this is for all people now I want you to notice verse 2 the very first example the illustration that Paul uses for kings and all who are in high positions again if you're marking your Bible circle the word all It's not some or most of. Again, not the political party you like, not not the color that you, you like to wear as a button for your political stripe or your political agenda. I want you to pray for kings and all who are in high positions. Now, here's why. That we may lead a peaceful and quiet life. We're to pray for those in authority so that we can lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Here's the reason for that. This is good, verse 3, and it, ple- and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. Now Paul gets really spiritual. He says, verse 4, who desires, again notice the word, all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle, and I'm telling the truth and I'm not lying. I find it fascinating that Paul has to emphasize that to Timothy. Timothy, listen, I am telling you the truth. I am not lying. I was appointed a preacher. Some of you in your translation might have the word herald. I was appointed a herald, an apostle, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. So last week we looked at the idea of the priority of prayer. Paul starts out, okay, in chapter 1, he's basically said, Timothy, go get this church to guard the gospel, that Jesus is God, that Jesus was born perfect and became man, that Jesus lived perfectly, died innocently, rose victoriously, reigns eternally, and all men, all of mankind must acknowledge him to be saved. And it's not just believe in. Can I make the record straight on that? Christianity is not people who believe in God. James says you believe in God, you do well. The demons also believe and tremble. 
It's trust in. It's have faith in. It's something bigger than believe in. In fact, I would submit that a lot of the world believes in God or a form of God. But not many trust in God, have faith in God. And so with all of that, you would think Paul would then say to Timothy, now, call a business meeting. Get those elders together. Get the disciplinary meetings happening. Get the membership list. Get the financial tallies. No, he says, of all the things that he says to go do, he says, get those people together and start praying. The priority of prayer. Start with prayer. That's what we looked at all of last week. So this week, as we come to the table of the Lord, I want to secondly look at, in our passage, Paul says prayer is the number one priority. It is not an option. It is not something you tag on to your Christianity. You start with it. In fact, if any of you are here and you name the name of Christ, if you would say, I am a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. I have trusted him with my soul and my life. I've given. How did you do that if you didn't start with prayer? Remember in Luke, the, the Pharisee who's standing in the temple and that tax collector publican, the scum of the earth of his culture is, is in there and, and this Pharisee is praying and he's saying, I thank you, Lord, that I am not like this man. I don't steal like this man. I am this and I am that and everything. And it says that the publican, what does it say? He, he doesn't even lift his eyes to heaven. He beats his chest and he says, oh God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Guys, that's prayer. And Jesus says, who went away justified, the Pharisee or the publican? And everybody knows the answer, the publican. So if you are in any kind of a relationship with Jesus, you know it starts with prayer. The irony and the fascination for me, and at least it's not lost on me, that it was the battle, the struggle of the church, is that we know we get to Jesus by prayer, but then we think now it's up to me to maintain my relationship with Jesus. And we forget about prayer. And we wonder why we have so much confusion in the world today about Christianity. We wonder why there's so much denominationalism. We wonder why there's so much church splits. Why there are so much hypocrisy in the church. I would contend based on God's word, it's because as a church, we've lost the medium of prayer. Now again, remember, I'm not saying that we now program it. That we now say, okay, every Wednesday at 7 o'clock, everybody comes and we're going to pray. And we're going to pray these rote prayers. One of the greatest blessings I have every week. You know, one of my favorite things about coming to church. And this is not to puff up Daniel. This is to make much of Daniel's God and his Savior. I love the fact that when we pray, it's almost as if we're talking to God for the very first time. I am not interested in going to God and saying the same things over and over and over again in some mechanical, robotic way, as if somehow this one time it'll count for something and he'll get it. From the smallest of prayers to the most desperate of prayers to the most uneducated of prayers to the most simple of prayers, God hears us when we pray. But there is a process of prayer You'll notice that, okay? Paul starts out, first of all then, I urge you. He wants us to do this. But then he says to pray for those in authority. Notice what he says in the end of verse 1 into verse 2. Pray for all people. Have you prayed for all people lately? Really? 
You take pop culture and you Shrek, really, really? When was the last time you prayed for all people? And then Paul gives us an example, and this blows my mind. I cannot lie to you. This is a people in a dictatorship. The Ephesians are under the rule of Rome. In fact, if you go to the temples, you have to, in fact, if you want to own a business, if you wanted to have a shop at the mall in Ephesus, you had to go in and to be able to have a store, you had to be willing to take a pinch of incense and throw it on the fire, which was a worship idol to Caesar. You worshiped Caesar. If you weren't willing to do that, you were not allowed to have a business at the mall. You'd have to have your own business outside, likely the city limits, or some area not sanctioned by the government, likely in an area where you didn't get a lot of people passing through. It wasn't a big congregational park. And so you had to have some real faith, because if you wanted to be a Christian and own a business, you likely weren't having it in the everyday culture. So everybody, I get it that our culture is getting more and more pagan, but don't think like we're the first ones to wake up and have a rough time to love Jesus. Study your first century Bible. These people knew what it was to get up every day and wonder, will we live to the end of the day? Will we feed our family? Will we be able to have jobs and maintain them? Will I get ahead? All of these things. And you'll notice in the Bible over and over again, their answer was not political activism. It was prayer. It was prayer. And so there's a process to prayer. And he says, right out of the gates, for kings and all who are in high positions. Why? That we may lead a peaceful and quiet life. Now, Paul says... He asks this church who's arguing over, let's be honest here, stupid stuff. They're struggling with unity. They're becoming elitist. They're pulling away from society and the culture. They were to start praying not only for all people, but they were to pray for those who were against them. Paul says, I want you to pray for those who are pushing back against everything you stand for. Pray for those who would potentially laugh at you or potentially hurt you or take things from them. And notice what the prayer was supposed to result in. A gentleness and a quietness that will baffle those around us. My wife and I read a book, and I believe it's in the library, and I know I have the videos for it. If you are married or you're contemplating marriage... I cannot recommend more highly a book called Love and Respect by Emerson Egridge. If you haven't read it, you should. Debbie and I love this book. We go back to it, and we talk about it a lot, even in our marriage. And at some point, maybe if we get some couples and you want to go through it, Debbie and I would love to go through that book again. But in that, Emerson is talking about him and his wife. They're driving along in the car, and they're having a discussion, an argument, um, and he's wrong and she's right. Now, before you ladies look at me like, well, that's normal, um, understand what he's saying. He was wrong, she was right, and she's yelling at him uh, and correcting him. And this is what he says. He says, honey, sometimes you're right at the top of your lungs. You know what? That's the problem in the church. Sometimes we're right at the top of our lungs. Are we right that life begins at conception? Yes. Are we right in the sanctity of marriage? Yes. Are we right in the sanctity of sexual relationships between men and women? Yes. Why do we need to yell and scream and rant and spit about it? Let's just live it out 
and pray for it. And have more faith in prayer than we do our activism. And if you wonder if you're saying, Steve, listen, you're getting too made up about this. Okay, let me give you an Old Testament and New Testament example. In the Old Testament, you have three guys. I love these. I don't know why none of our young people are named this. Are you ready for this? Imagine having this handle, James. Shadrach or Meshach. Or here you go. How about Abednego? All right? You got these three Jewish guys who were taken into captivity in Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar has a complete ego trip, and he builds a 90-foot statue to himself. And he basically says, when the band strikes, the whole city is to stop, drop, and worship. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego do not, as, as soon as the king puts out the edict, that they, are now, they, don't get, and they, don't form to get, they don't get together and form the first Christian alliance against statue worship. They don't do that. They simply get together and say, you know what? We love God, and we will not worship. And so when the band strikes up the music and everybody bows down, it is obvious that there's three dudes still standing up. And Nebuchadnezzar gets ticked off. He fires up a furnace. He drags them in. He threatens them. He, 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 he tries to intimidate them. And I love this in Daniel chapter 3. Here's what these three guys say. Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. How's that for starting your defense? When they bring him in, them in, and they say, why won't you bow down? And we've told you, and there's a government law that says you have to do this. Why won't you do this? Their answer is, we don't have to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. They have complete confidence in God's power. Notice this. Well, they also have complete confidence in God's sovereignty. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. They just pray about it and then live out the gospel. And if you say, well, that's the Old Testament. All right, let's go back to Acts chapter 4. If you've got a Bible, go back to Acts chapter 4. And in Acts chapter 4, you've got the, the, the church is just exploding with power. 3,000 people got saved in one day. All kinds of things. Peter and Paul and these guys, or Peter and John are, are, are performing these miracles. Peter is talking in Solomon's porch in the temple and all these things. And in chapter 4 of Acts, it says, And they were speaking to the people. But the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming Jesus the resurrection from the dead and they arrested them put them in custody and if you read the rest of the chapter the next day the rulers and the elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John now I want you to remember some things about these names these are the same people that stood over Jesus trial this guy, Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas were the same two guys that presided over the trials of Jesus. And they told them that they needed to knock it off. Verse 8, then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, 
by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, now notice this, this is politically correct, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. Now notice verse 13. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, they perceived that they were uneducated men, common men. They were astonished. And here's what I wish for every person of this church. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Would your family, your neighborhood, your co-workers know and recognize you've been with Jesus? Now notice that this doesn't mean you're going to be liked. That comes with the fact that these guys were annoyed. They have been arrested. All of these things. But they had noticed these things. Now, I love this. They get down here and they threaten them and they tell them, stop speaking in the name of Jesus. And they tell them, look, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And then I love it. They get released because they're more afraid of the general public than of these people. And it says, when they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders said to them. Now notice this, verse 24 of chapter 4, And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, they prayed. They didn't get together and said, now listen, momentum's on our side. They're more afraid of the culture than they are us. They're more afraid, right now we've got the people's favor. Let's rally the troops. Let's have a freedom march for Christianity tomorrow. Let's get the placards and sign them up. No, they got together and they prayed. And if you read it, they pray the Old Testament. They quote David, why do the Gentiles rage? And I love this. Then they bring it into the New Testament. And they say in verse 27, both Herod and Pontius Pilate along with the Gentiles. And I love this, verse 29. And now, Lord, look upon their threats. And grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Now, yes, I'm getting worked up. My hanky is coming out soon. All right? I am as reformed Baptist as a guy can get. All right? I really am. You need to know that. I'm as straight-laced when it comes to the approach to the Word of God as I think a fella can be. I am conservative with an emotional twist. All right? Because I believe in the power of the Holy Spirit to shake a place if God's people pray. And I believe that God will do something with us and through us to this city if we will pray. And the process of prayer is there. Pray for all people. And in praying for all people, pray for those that are in positions of authority who don't agree with us. Pray for those who think we're crazy. Pray for those that seek to shut us down. Pray for those and all. Listen, this church is growing. All right? And by God's grace, we're going to blow the walls in all four directions on this place. Either that or move to another place. But don't fool yourselves. If God really blesses and people start to come to Jesus and we start to expand on this property and we start going to our town and we start talking about permits, and you don't think someone's going to say, give them a hard time. 
Now, what are we going to do? We're going to all gather together and say, how can we tell him that he's a bad fellow? Or what about let's just together and pray and say, oh, God, save him. You know the easiest way to get things through City Hall? It's for God to save people that run City Hall. That'll be really easy. I'm not asking City Hall to see it our way. That's what I love about what Steve two weeks ago preached out of uh, Nehemiah. Nehemiah is just praying. He's asking God to work. But you'll notice he prays and he spends all that time showing respect to his king. But he prays, the process of prayer is, he prays first for himself and his own sin and the sin of his country. He doesn't say, Lord, kill the king and free us from this. and free. He just prays. Listen, praying for our prime minister, praying for our premier, praying for our mayor is critical for faithful Christian living. Praying for the prime minister, praying for the premier, praying for the mayor is for the purpose of our own well-being. Praying for the prime minister, praying for the premier, praying for the mayor, mayor is beautiful in the eyes of God. When was the last time you prayed for your leaders and you didn't pray for them to do everything your way? You prayed more that God would save them than that God would make them give you your way. That's the process of prayer. We're called and commanded to do what Jesus did, to love and pray for those who don't love us back. We're called to pray for those who disagree with us. We're called to pray for those who laugh at us. We're called to pray for those who do us wrong. We pray for those who sin and don't know any better, just like us. Just like us. As I said two weeks ago, I had the joy of going to the Shalloway concert and watching, what, 300 kids? 300 kids with 1,200 people in attendance, and the music was beautiful, and they celebrated a noble cause, anti-bullying. But they did it all under the guise of something else, which was the complete acceptance of homosexuality as if that is okay with God. Now, what should we do? Should I have whipped out my placard and went, boo, every time somebody got up and sang something? Or put, you know, burn in hell, death to all of those who... Guys, you really think that's how we're supposed to act as Christians? Instead, I sat there and I enjoyed the beautiful music. I sat there and I could not believe how God has gifted humanity to be so immensely creative. And I found my heart praying for the souls of everybody in that room, that they would know Jesus. The big theme of that Shalloway concert was not living in fear. And it broke my heart because the idea is if we all will just get along, we'll we'll lose our fear. And yet the Bible says the only way to live fear-free is to come to Jesus. Perfect love casts out fear. Because you know what? Even if the whole world accepts us on one issue, the whole world will find another issue not to accept you. And then the moment you think you have gotten the world to accept you in some way, now you replace that fear with the fear of what if I ever lose this? The greatest lie of the world is that you can somehow live without fear. The only way to live without fear is in Christ. That's the only way. So listen, we are not called to be politically active. We are not called to somehow rub up Christianity up the noses like you take a pet who has done something in the house and you take them and you rub their snout in it. That is not what we're supposed to do with the world. 
The process of prayer is to pray for them and pray for them and pray for them. Paul is really saying this. Do you want to have influence in your home, in your neighborhood, your city, your province, your country, and your world? Do you want to have those in positions of power to sense and feel not only our love and desire to contribute and participate in in, in society, but also to look and even fear God? Pray. Pray like you've never prayed before. Ask God to break your heart with compassion. Jesus stood over Jerusalem and he cried in prayer. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, if you would but come to me, I would nurture you in as a, as a, as a mother hen or chicks. When was the last time any of us went up on Signal Hill, looked out over our city, and cried out, oh God, save people in this city. And would you start with our premier? Would you save our mayor? Would you save the people that run our departments of government? Would you put people in positions of power that would want to live for Jesus above all things? So then he moves into this, the purpose of prayer. Notice what he says. This is good. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 7 again. Chapter 2, sorry. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. What's good? Prayer for them. It's good who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. There they are. Stare at them for a minute. Are those not beautiful verses? Do you realize what Paul is saying there? When we pray as a people, when we pray as a church, this, this is pleasing and good in the sight of God. And, and why? Because God desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. This is the gospel. Our God's plan, God's plan for us in this world, we are to pray because God's plan is to save people. People in our lives, there are people that you know that God wants to save, that God will save. People in this city, people around the world. Now listen, I understand when we say there's all people to be saved. Everybody in this room knows that God's not saving everybody. What this verse means, what Paul is telling him, that God's desire to save means he will save people from all nations and all tribes and all tongues. He is no respecter of persons. That's the primary purpose of why we need to pray as a church. So what this means for everybody in this room, there is nobody in this room so bad that you were outside the reach of Jesus. So I don't know what you're struggling with. I don't know if you've got a hidden sin or a hidden shame. I don't know if you're thinking, man, if everybody here knew this about me, they wouldn't want me in this room. Listen, if you knew everything about me, you wouldn't want me in this room. But Jesus, because of this, no one is too bad to be outside the reach of Jesus. But the opposite is true as well. That means there's no one good enough not to need Jesus. The pastor that had the greatest influence on me influence on me, used to say this, I've never met the sinner who went to God who God didn't want. 
So it doesn't matter how bad you are or how good you are. Jesus died for you. He is the mediator. Paul knew that a praying church cannot be a hating church. John Chrysostom, the old church father, once said, it's much more difficult to hate someone when you are praying for them. When you really start to pray for some, someone, you will actually find that you can love them. So, what Paul is actually saying here in the progress of prayer is the progress of the gospel in the world is dependent upon the prayers of God's people in the church. So listen, the reason we're not seeing more people saved in St. John's is not because we don't have slicker ministries. It's not because we don't have a nicer church. It's not because we don't have a more uh, proactive way to reach out into our city. We need to pray. Because in prayer, God not only moves, but He unlocks creativity in His people. In prayer, God's going to give us ideas, give us ways to share our faith and share the gospel with others. But we pray for God's glory. I read this past week that A.B. Simpson, does anybody know that name? A.B. Simpson, anybody hear that name? He is the fa- yeah, there's a couple, I figured the couple from out Westwood. A.B. Simpson is the founder of the denomination, the Christian Missionary Alliance. A wonderful denomination out west. You know what? The story is told that every morning he got up and got on his knees and prayed, but he clutched a globe and he cried out in prayer while he prayed. He hung on to a globe and he cried in prayer for God to save people. Where's our urgency, church? We pray for God's glory because we believe that God is indeed the only way. He is the only way. There is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Listen to God himself in Isaiah 45. And there is no other God besides me. That's pretty exclusive. A righteous God and a Savior. There is none besides me. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. Jesus would echo this in John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. You see, now, this is a highly educated church. Let me just say for the record, any way you choose to live will lead you to God. You can live whatever life you want to lead, and you will get to God. It is wrong when churches say there's only one way to God. No, there's not. Any way you want to live, you can, lead, you can get to God. Any philosophy, in fact, I get asked all the time, what's the difference between Christianity and all the other religions and philosophies of the world? Our passage tells us, okay, it's Jesus Christ. You see, you can live any way you want, and you will get to God as judge. But there's only one way to live to get to God as Father, and that's through Jesus Christ. No man comes to the Father but by me. So you can live whatever way you want to live. But if you want to get to God as Father, you've got to go through Jesus. And that's why we need to pray. So the goal of our prayer is not just salvation for people, but really it's worship. We long for the world to worship God. We long for the church who loves God and loves His Word. We long to hear from Him and be like Him and trust Him. See, listen, this is my thing about prayer. Don't just pray that people will get saved so we're proven right. Pray that people will get saved because you want them to know what you know. That Jesus loves you. 
Too much of our Christianity is about trying to convince the world we're right. Who cares? That's why my favorite, favorite example of Scripture, as I keep going back to it, is the guy born blind. He's in the temple and everybody's coming to him. Who is this Jesus and how did you get healed and what's your theology? And he's like, listen guys, I have no answers to any of your questions. I know this, I once was blind and now I see. Do you want me to take you and show you Jesus too? Listen guys, don't get your theology just so you can win an argument. Don't pray that people will get saved just so you can put another feather in your hat or a notch in your belt or a notch on your head, headboard or whatever it is you do to feel good about yourself. Pray that God would save souls because you just want people to know Jesus. You want them to be set free from the lie of Satan that somehow you can find free. And notice it says, he gave himself as a ransom for us and I don't have the time. But oh, how I wish I could unpack what it means to be a ransom for us. A ransom in the first century in a world of slavery meant that everybody was a slave. Uh, I shouldn't say everybody, but a large part of the population was a slave. And so everybody had a price on them. And if you wanted, someone would come and say, what's his ransom? And that basically meant was what was he for sale for? What would it cost to buy him? And if somebody wanted, a guy could pay that price and purchase you. And then you were his and he could decide whether or not to make you free. And so Paul is telling Timothy, get the Ephesians to pray to Jesus Christ who is our ransom. In other words, Jesus came and paid for our freedom. And guess what? The, the amazing part of this is we owed him the debt. Jesus comes and pays for our freedom with his life and his blood and his death. And then he says, now I free you from the, the holy judgment of a holy God, and I declare you righteous and justified. And God the Father says, because of Jesus, now you're my children. I'm adopting you, and you're mine. Guys, I'm sorry. That excites me. Because I am a, as you saw in my email this morning, I am a class one screw-up. I have invented ways to fail. And every time I can fall to my knees and say, oh, God, I need you again. And he forgives me. And the father says, son, you're forgiven. You're forgiven. Don't carry the burden. Stop performing and just pray. Stop trying to please everybody. Stop trying to convince me to love you. I already do. And if you've been a parent with a wayward child, you know what I'm talking about. You know what I'm talking about when your kids try to earn your favor. Or your kids want to know that you love them. And you've had to take them aside and say, listen, I do love you. You don't have to try and convince me to love you. You're mine. You're mine. Relax. Just enjoy. The fact that you're mine. In fact, I will tell you, you, some of you know my testimony. I ran away from home and all these things. But some of the greatest moments, I got sick a couple of times in my life. And once they thought I had meningitis. And I had to be in the hospital. And I was waiting that, that test that they do where they shove that needle deep in there. And, and I love the way they do that because they tell you as they're grabbing you, you know, we're going to put this needle in here and don't move or you could be paralyzed. Like you're really, really sick and feeling miserable. And then they lay that on you. And then they bring in this nurse. And she looks like she could wrestle 
anybody, and she grabs you, and then they walk up behind you, and they stick this thing in, and it's all supposed to be for your good, all right? But I remember as I lay there sick and weak, and I wondered everything, the room was spinning, and my stomach was everywhere, and I just remember my dad holding my hand, and my dad would say things to me whenever I got sick, whenever I got low, my dad just holding my hand, and my dad would say to me, Stephen, you're always going to be my son. You're my boy. And I loved my dad for saying that to me. But you know what? I got a greater dad than even my earthly dad, which is my heavenly father. Who, when I do well and I screw up, grabs my hand and says, you're mine. You're mine because of Jesus. You're mine. And that's this process of prayer. And then in verse 7, very quickly, there's the proclamation of prayer. So there's the priority of prayer, there's the process of prayer, there's the purpose of prayer, there's the proclamation of prayer. Watch what Paul does in verse 7. He says, I have been appointed. I have been appointed a herald, a teacher. I'm telling you the truth and I'm not lying. What what does Paul, he says, the antidote of arguing, the antidote of bickering, of chasing after myths and mindless discussions is when we're so focused on telling others about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done in our lives. Amen? Amen. Look, some of the kids are more excited. Amen. Now, wow and uh uh-oh, right? Because maybe the reason we don't actually do evangelism is we're more worried about blowing people away with our arguments and our logistical skills than we have that we've lost sight of the fact that Jesus' greatest power lies in how we love each other and how we actually have been changed by Jesus. Evangelism is not winning an argument. Evangelism is letting the world know, I have found Jesus, and he's awesome. Notice Paul uses that word, uh, I've been a preacher. It's a herald is the Greek word. And then he says, I'm a teacher. So we're back to the Great Commission, aren't we, in Matthew 28? But I want you to think about how the New Testament describes Christians. We're called witnesses in Acts 1. Jesus says, I will make you my witnesses. Paul in Corinthians says that we're ambassadors. Here he says we're heralds. In in Ephesians we're told to be children. Now think about all that for a second. A witness is simply someone who tells what they know. When you're called to be a witness, your agenda when you get called to court to be a witness is not to convince everybody of your brain power. You're simply there to tell the truth. You're simply there to answer the questions of what's being asked of you because you are a witness to something. If you're an ambassador, you're simply someone who represents someone who's above you. If you're a herald, you're simply announcing. If you're a child, you simply imitate. I was here on Saturday, and and little Caleb was here with John. And John has got this gift. He's been helping us with all this sound stuff, and he's gifted. And Caleb was there with his little plastic screwdriver, and he was watching his dad. And his dad even said, yeah, Caleb has kind of the OCD problems that his father has. Right? Because Caleb was trying to organize all the DVDs, and if they fell over, he'd get right back to picking them up. A child simply imitates. A few weeks ago, I wrote on my Facebook, witnessing is not about whether you're an extrovert or an introvert. People think, oh, Steve, it's easy for you. You're extroverted. Really? I still get petrified of people just like you do. I don't want to be laughed at. 
The greatest maybe provocation that everybody thinks here is because I speak up here and I look confident when I do it. Listen, you know what the number one idol I struggle with is your approval. That's the number one idol I, I struggle with. It doesn't matter if you're extroverted or introverted. It matters if you've been converted. Because then you will just be a witness of what God has done for you in your life. You will be a herald of what He has done. Listen, we have absolute and exclusive claims of the gospel, but they are to be made known universally. We're saying that our God is the only way to be right. But we make them universally to everybody, and you're only going to do that in prayer. And guys, listen, Revelation is one of my other favorite books of the Bible, and not because I think it's the Star Wars of the Bible. All right, Revelation really is like the old southern gospel song. I don't know if Art and June heard it while they were away in their travels, but I think the old cathedral quartet used to sing this song, I've read the back of the book and we win. You want to know the, the, the stream of prayer through the Bible? You get to Revelation chapter 5 and 8. In Revelation chapter 5, John tells us this, And when he, that's God, had taken the scroll... And the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and a golden bowls full of incense, notice this, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And if you've made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Does that not sound like 1 Timothy 2, 1 to 7? If the priority is prayer, here's the bottom line. At the end of the day, the prayers of the saints become the incense that is the backdrop of the song that God does what He promises He's going to do. In chapter 8, And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer, listen, with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne and the smoke of the incense, with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder and rumblings and flashings of lightning and an earthquake. You know what John is telling the church? Prayer changes things. Prayer has power. Don't worry about being politically active. I am not saying that you're not to be involved. One man, one vote in our democratic society. If God calls you to public life, serve the public and honor God. But as a church, let us be a church of prayer. Let us be excited about Jesus. As I said last week, Mary, Queen of Scots said, I fear the prayers of John Knox more than all the assembled armies of Europe. And as we come to the table of the Lord, I just want to ask Grace, sorry, Calvary Baptist Church. It's going to happen to me a couple of times yet. Calvary Baptist Church. Will we be a church who prays? Individually? As couples? As families? And as a family, when we get together in our life groups, before we eat, when we have coffee and lunch, 
when we hang out together here and do work days, when we plan, does God want us to expand here and stay here or move somewhere else? What if God calls us to like the weirdest place in all of the city of St. John's, like whatever we think is the armpit of St. John's? Are we prepared to go there if that's where God wants us to go because he shows us in prayer? Because listen, do you think anything or any place or any geographical location can stand in the way of prayer? And if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus, let me just say that God loves you and we're praying for you. And you can know God and you can know that Jesus died for you and you can be in a relationship with God Then, more than simply a God are you out there. More than anything, I want you to know if you're here and you don't know Jesus, you can pray. And for us as Christians, we say we believe in God. We say we trust in Jesus. We say we believe that God's Spirit is within us. Then let us pray. Let us pray. You see, are we a people of prayer or are we a people in need of prayer? And the answer is yes to both. We need to start praying as a church. When we meet for coffee, when we have lunch, when we talk at our life groups, when we do ministry and life together, when we share with each other and the way we witness, we must be about prayer. Folks, prayer overcomes sin. Prayer fills our hearts and minds with God and His greatness and His bigness. It will heal our differences, not be showing us who the winner is, but by pulling us back to His word and His direction and His lead. There's the priority of prayer, the process of prayer, the purpose of prayer, and the proclamation of prayer. And interestingly enough, as we now come to this table, this is a table that was put together by prayer. And so let us enjoy it together. I'm going to ask...